Uh, If you have your Bible with you, if you don't mind to turn to Acts chapter 19, that'll be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, Here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, we we walk through the Scriptures, and so uh, for over a year now, we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts is simply a book that talks about uh, a very transitional time in the Bible. Uh, This is the time between uh, the death, uh, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his church. His church is established throughout the book of Acts. And so there's all types of things going on in the book of Acts uh, as God is expanding his kingdom, as people are hearing the gospel. Uh, A central figure in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. And so we've been looking at Paul's missionary journeys as he's been going throughout the Roman Empire and telling people about Jesus and about the gospel. And so if you've been with us in this study, you know that he's encountered all kinds of different folks along the way. And today, he's going to encounter a group of folks who were disciples of John the Baptist. And the unique thing about the group that he encounters in the text we're going to look at today is they had had heard parts of the gospel, uh, but they hadn't heard the whole gospel. Or at least they didn't understand the whole gospel. And so much like many people today... Uh, They had an understanding of who God was. They had an understanding of some of the things that we're called to do as Christians. But there were some things missing. And so I hope as we look at this text today, God will help us all to to better understand His Word, uh, to better understand uh, what it means uh, to be born again, uh, to become a Christian, and what it is we need to know in order for that to take place. So uh, this morning's been a little different. Uh, You've been sitting a lot, so if you're able to stand, uh, if you would, out of reverence for God's Word, stand as I read this text for us. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we pick up at a point now where Paul has gone to the city of Ephesus, and that's where he encounters these disciples of John the Baptist. And so this is what God's Word says to us. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. If you would pray with me. Father God, I do ask that in these moments you would help us to better understand your word. And Lord, that is a work that only you can do. And so I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would... Open up eyes to see, minds to understand and comprehend, hearts to believe in the one true gospel that has been handed down to us that we might live in response to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we walk through uh, this text and look at the events that happened some 2,000 years ago, I want to remind you of something that happened a couple hundred years ago. Uh, Back in 1820, there was a lawyer named Washington Irving uh, who wrote a a series of short stories. And the first one that he wrote and published may sound familiar to some of you. It was about a a man who 
didn't really like work much and uh, didn't have the greatest relationship with his wife. In fact, he described her as a nag more than anything. And so to uh, escape work and to escape his wife, he, he wandered up a mountain one day. And while he was up that mountain, he encountered a, a strange group of men playing a strange game, drinking a strange drink. And they invited him to join in. And so this man not only partook of that strange drink, but after he did, he entered into a slumber and a deep sleep that would last for some 20 years. Now, some of you are familiar with this story. Do you know the name of that character? Reap, thank you, and the rest are asleep for 20 years, but we got one. Rip Van Winkle. Uh, Irving's character was Rip Van Winkle, so if you know the story, you know that when Rip wakes up, he's, he's got this very long beard, his appearance has changed. What's it changed even more than that, though, is the town that he had remembered. He wanders down into town, and Irving's story basically accounts uh, him seeing how everything had changed around him. You see, when Rip went to sleep, it was about a decade before the Revolutionary War. And when he woke up, it was about a decade after the Revolutionary War. And what Irving describes in this short story is how everything changed in Rip's life, in the culture, in the community. And he woke up, in essence, in a new world, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand it and put the pieces together, trying to understand why... Uh, the picture that hung at his favorite tavern that had been of King George was now of another George, of George Washington. And the story he tells is one of him trying to make sense of all these things. Well, I want you to think for a second this morning what, what that might be like. What might it be like for you to go to sleep? Now, I know that wouldn't happen in church right now, but if it does, you'll sleep for 20 years. So. But imagine if you were to go to sleep much later today and Sleep in 2015, but wake up in 2035. Uh, imagine how different the world might be. I've thought back about this. I've thought about what the world was like in 1995, because uh, recently my wife and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, and we were just talking about you know, life then and life now. And, and when you consider what life was like 20 years ago, things really have changed, haven't they? So, uh, kids, uh, it used to be that in order to have a mobile phone you had a duffel bag, and the phone was in that bag. Uh, if you could afford one, because 20 years ago, to use a mobile phone in a duffel bag, you would pay $500 a minute or something. I mean, it was outrageous. People just didn't have them, or your average person didn't. So imagine what it would be like to go to bed in 1995, wake up in 2015, where all you see around you is people talking on their mobile phones. No longer the size of duffel bags, but in their hand. That's just one example. Lots of things have changed. And if you look around the world today, it's no surprise to see lots of things are changing. And when you think about closing your eyes today and waking up 20 years from now, well, things would change quite a bit, won't they? And so what would you need? You, you would need someone uh, to walk you through these changes and help you understand what had taken place. That's what Rip needed in Irving's story. And that's what we find today is needed in Acts chapter 19 because the Apostle Paul, as he goes throughout his third missionary journey, he encounters a group of first century Van Winkles. Uh, These are people who are unaware of what has taken place over the last 20 years. You see, at this point in the book of Acts, it's been about 20 years since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in these 20 years, in these two decades... These disciples of John, they don't really understand what has taken place. 
And so they need someone to explain it to them so that they might better understand. You see, the problem that these disciples of John had in Acts 19 is it's really the problem many of us have in the church today. We don't fully understand the gospel. And maybe we intellectually understand it, but we haven't really responded to it. And so that's why when you see polls on TV that say, well, uh, among evangelical Christians they believe this, among Christians they believe this, we need to step back and go, yes, but do they even understand what a Christian is? <laughs> do they even understand what they're saying when they say, well, I fit into this category? Because you see, most people don't. And, and here's how you find that out. It may seem a bit judgmental for me to say that someone may say they're a Christian and really not be. We well, we've kind of become accustomed in the church of saying, well, well, you know, only God knows the heart, and who am I to judge, and who am I to say? But when you read the scriptures, you actually find that they lay out for us very clearly how we can discern if a person actually has saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said, you would know a tree by its fruit. And we read in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And so there are fruits we can look for, and so... We can actually have conversations with people not in a non-judgmental way and discern kind of where they are spiritually. Do they really believe and understand the gospel? A number of years ago, someone introduced me to a series of questions you could ask to discern these things uh, based on uh, Pastor D. James Kennedy. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. He was a Presbyterian minister in Florida for a number of years and trained people on how to engage others in talking about their faith. And, and so those questions became known as the Kennedy Questions. And so if you want to know kind of where a person is spiritually, you can ask some of these questions. And I would encourage you just to think in your mind as I ask this question now. If your life were to expire today, not any tornadoes headed this way or anything, but let's, you know, life expires today, and you stood before God, and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What comes to mind? You ask someone that question, you find out very quickly what it is they believe. As a minister, as a Christian, I've had the opportunity to ask that question uh, to people all over our country, all over the world. And, and I would say the majority of the time, the way people respond is along these lines. They usually say something like, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do what I'm supposed to do. I've tried to obey the Bible. I've tried to be a good Christian. I've tried to go to church. Usually they'll talk about what they have tried to do in their attempts to earn merit before a holy God. Well, that tells you a lot about what they believe. A follow-up question to that that Kennedy proposed was this. Based on your answer, how sure are you that God would say, come in? Most people will give some percentage. Well, I'm 90%, or I'm 80%, or I'm 72.5%, or, or some percentage that basically helps you understand where their confidence lies. Now, let me just clarify. I don't think God is going to be there standing before the gates asking these questions. I don't think anyone's going to ask us these questions. I don't think there's any biblical support that somehow when we die, we're going to stand before God and He's going to show some movie reel of our life. What the scripture says is that it's appointed once for man to die and after that comes judgment. We will all stand before a holy God and there will be a count that needs to be given. But here's the problem. According to the scripture, we have no merit, we have no 
ability, no right to stand before God and say, well, let me tell you all the things I've done, God. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel that says, try hard, try hard, try hard. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not based on what you and I do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in what Christ has done. And so, when it comes to discerning where someone is spiritually, you ask them that question, what would you say to God? You find out real quick, are they trusting in themselves, or are they trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? That tells you a lot about what that person is. And so we can ask questions like this to really discern where people are spiritually. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage as he encounters these followers, these disciples of John. And so... I want to walk through this text and just look at some things that I think might help you and I better understand what does it mean to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to truly be born again? What is that phrase? What does that mean? Where does that come from? And again, I don't think God's going to ask that question, but if that question were asked, what basis, what answer might we give that's in line with what the Scripture says? See, there's some things we need to understand about this, and I think there's some confusion in our culture and in the church today, beginning with the first point there I put in your notes. Point one, belief alone will not save us. And so we use this term, save, that comes from the term salvation, understanding what does it mean to have salvation, to be saved by God. And so people will talk about getting saved or being saved, but it's important we know what does that actually mean and how do we get there. And we need to understand from the Scripture that just believing something enough, well, that's not enough to save us. Notice what happens here in Acts 19. Uh, Paul comes to Ephesus. Ephesus was like many of the major cities we've seen Paul go to in his day. Uh, It was a pagan city. There was lots of pagan worship. They worshipped uh, false gods, false goddesses. But among this false worship, Paul encounters this small group of disciples. We've talked about this before. Disciples would be people who would do what? They would follow the teaching of another, and they would teach others that teaching. And so here, specifically, these are disciples of John, John the Baptist. So what would they be teaching? They would be teaching what they had learned from John the Baptist. Now, chances are, these disciples may have never met John the Baptist, They probably didn't know John the Baptist. They probably didn't spend time personally with John the Baptist. They are merely disciples of John, meaning that they have heard about what John taught and they are following that teaching of John the Baptist. And so to understand that more, you look back at passages like Luke chapter 3 where we're introduced to John the Baptist and, and in Luke's gospel we get a little bit better understanding of what it was John was teaching Which then helps us to understand in Acts chapter 19 what these people were believing. So, for example, in Luke chapter 3, we read that John, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what this tells us is that John was telling people they needed to repent. Again, that's a word we throw around a lot. What does that mean? A repentance in the scripture means that we are in sin, we're walking in sin, and we stop and we turn from that sin. And so our rebellion towards God, our sin, whatever that might be, for us to simply say, well, I'm sorry, or I don't want to do that anymore, I'll try harder, that's not repentance. Repentance is when we go before holy God and and we confess that that is indeed sin and we turn from it and we seek to go the other direction. And so John the Baptist here is by the Jordan. He is telling people, you need to repent. 
And so John very simply goes into the culture and says, okay, y'all need to stop sinning and stop doing what you're doing. You need to get ready because one is coming after me through whom you will have salvation. He's proclaiming the Messiah. Now, to understand that, you need to go all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the book of Genesis. Where we read about a sovereign God creating all things. And in creating all things, He creates man. And He places Adam and Eve in this garden. Uh, This garden was essentially a sanctuary. This was a place they would worship God, believe in God, trust God. And God puts them in charge of a lot of things. He gives them dominion over that garden. So if you read the book of Genesis and that creation account, you see that that they're in charge of things. But God reminds them that they're not God. (laughs) They're not ultimately in control of all things. He puts this tree in the garden. And He says, you can eat of anything here, but do not eat of this tree. Now, pause there for a second. This side of what happens in Genesis, fallen world, Parents, what happens if you lay out a bunch of food on the table, you're having company, you're having guests over, having a party, whatever it might be, and the kids, grandkids, whoever, they're standing there, and you say, listen, you you can snack, you can have some of those carrots, and you can have a little bit of that broccoli over there, but this plate of cookies, you can't eat any of these cookies yet. These cookies are for later, cookies for the guests, I, I don't want you to touch these cookies. Now, you can eat anything else here, leave the cookies alone. Enjoy the broccoli and the celery and all this other stuff. Well, what would probably happen once you left that room? Cookies. They, they would turn into the cookie monster real quick. There'd be cookies going everywhere. Now, now why is that? Well, one, because normal people like cookies. You know. Cookies are, you know, you like them. They taste better than broccoli. That kid, really, you should eat the broccoli, not the cookie. That's, that's just me, but... Why is it that when you say, don't do this, that's the very thing we're drawn to do? Why is it that if you have a list of rules and you're really emphasizing a rule, what is it about us that is tempted then to break that rule? What goes all the way back to the garden? Adam and Eve in the garden are told, you can eat anything here, just don't eat this. And what do they do? They eat from that tree. Now think about that. With that, according to the Scripture, comes the fall, meaning that we then all inherit this sin nature and that God is just in saying to us that we are deserving to hell for our sin. Think of where that all starts. It wasn't that in the garden Adam picked up a club and hit Eve or that they did this super rebellious thing that we might think of as rebellion in our culture today. What did they do? They picked up a piece of fruit and they ate it. Now, to the world, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Why would God punish Adam and Eve and every generation since because they picked up a piece of fruit and ate it? It's because in the garden, God was establishing a clear boundary that they might understand that, that He was God and that they were not. And with the enemy, what Satan told Adam and Eve was, oh no, you can be your own God. (laughs) What... What is it that people want in our culture today? They want to be the master of their own destiny. They don't want someone else to tell them what to do. They want to control everything about their world. It's the same thing Adam and Eve wanted in the garden, and it's sin. And what the Bible says is that because of that sin, we rightly deserve separation from God. And so God takes Adam and Eve out of the garden. 
And the scripture says he actually he, he puts a flaming sword there to keep them from going back in. What happens there? There's this broken fellowship between God and man. And the only thing that can restore that fellowship is for that penalty to be paid. And so then if you know the story, you follow it through. Stuff just goes from bad to worse. People start killing each other. All kinds of craziness happens. Just, just bad stuff keeps getting worse and worse and worse in the book of Genesis. But here's the hope. As soon as God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, he says one is going to come, a redeemer, and he's going to make all things right. And the rest of the Old Testament is telling the story of this redeemer who's going to come. And that's what we see in the New Testament. That's Jesus Christ. He's the redeemer. He's the king. He's the one who comes to make everything right. Why? Because he's perfect. He's fully God, fully man. He goes to the cross. He dies for man's sin. He deserved no death. We do deserve death. He died in our place. And there's this beautiful picture in the Bible that we who are sinners can place our faith in Jesus and turn from our sin and have faith in him and then be in that right relationship, we can go back into the garden. That This is what people were looking towards when John the Baptist was at the riverside and he was calling people to repentance. He was saying to them, thousands of years have gone by, but the Redeemer's coming really soon. And so, for example, he said this, people were coming to him. They, they were expecting something to happen. They were even asking him, Now, John, are, are you Jesus? Listen to what he said. John answered them by saying, I, I baptize you with water, but one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, you go back to Acts 19, and that explains a lot. Because what you have in Acts 19 are people who picked up on some of that. So they, they believed something. They believed enough to be John's disciples, but they obviously didn't understand everything John was teaching. Because John talks there about the Holy Spirit, but what do they say to Paul? Paul asks them about the Holy Spirit, they're like, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. So obviously there's some things missing. What's the point of that? The point is, is that it's not enough for us just to know some things about God. So we live in a culture and a world where people think... Well, if I just believe some things about God, I'll be okay. And so you ask them questions about their faith. Well, I believe in God. Oh, okay, well, they believe in God. Uh, but the Scripture makes it really clear that just believing in God is not enough to save us. If just simply believing something was enough to save, then Paul wouldn't have had any more conversation with these disciples of John. But he kind of presses them. Why? Because it's not enough for them to just believe some things. In fact, I would suggest that the Scripture says that it's really not enough for us to believe, even if we believe everything rightly. And that's why in James 2, he talks about people who believe all this stuff, and they believe well, but they don't actually do anything about what they believe. James says it this way, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's talking here about the relationship between faith and works. But then he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. So he basically takes one of the most complicated doctrines of the Christian faith, the Trinity, and he says, you believe in the Trinity. You believe in the triune nature of God. That's great. Now, now that's a big deal. Many have said throughout the history of the church, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. It is a very complex, complicated doctrine. Every example, every illustration that pastors or theologians come up with, they fall short, they lead to some type of heresy. 
But here, real clearly, James says, you understand this. Then he says this, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And so James is saying, listen, belief isn't enough to save you. So this morning, if you're here and you think that you're okay, that you're fine, that you're, gonna, you're just good and you're going to stand before God, everything's good because you believe some things about God, take note. The Scripture says there's more to this. Point two, a repentance alone is not enough to save us. And so we see here not only a group of people who believe some things, we actually see a group of people that are repentant. Paul asked them, well, what were you baptized into? They say into John's baptism. So again, you've got this guy John out there by the river saying, you need to repent and turn from your sin. People were asking John, so what do we need to do? He's explaining it to him. He says, okay, let's say you have two tunics. So two coats, two coverings. Somebody doesn't have any. Well, give to the one who has none one of yours. So, so he says there real clearly, think of your fellow man, care for your fellow man. That's a biblical instruction there. And so then more people asking questions. So then you've got... Uh, tax collectors asking questions, going, what do we do? He says, well, stop taking taxes you shouldn't take. So you work for the IRS today. A little biblical suggestion for you there. Now, then he's got people who come to him and say, well, this is our job. What do we do? And this is our job. What do we do? It's essentially the same today as if you were to say, okay, well, well I'm a farmer. How does this apply to me? Well, I'm a business owner. How does this apply to me? Well, I work in construction, how does this apply to me? And John is going through these lists, and he's basically pointing out, well, you're going to be tempted to do this sin, so stop doing this. But there's a fundamental problem with this. Because John basically is saying this to people. Stop sinning. So what's the problem there? What's the problem with me just saying to you today, stop sinning? Sinning. If I say today, stop sinning, are you going to stop sinning? I can tell you if you say it to me, I'm not. <laughs> not on my own, at least. You see, the problem with telling people to stop sinning is what Martin Luther said. Nothing is easier than sinning. <laughs> Nobody teaches you how to sin. Uh, I've said this before. I think it serves to illustrate. I mean, how many of you sat your child down and said, okay, today we're going to learn how to say no? Don't need to teach them that, do you? That they figure that one out pretty, pretty good. And then when you teach them the right way, do they obey it perfectly? I mean, how many of you in this room, and you can walk the aisle and testify if you want on this one, how many of you have gone into a child's room and it was just, I mean, a mess? I mean, you're finding birthday cake from three years ago. You're finding all kinds of, you know, all that stuff got in there. You didn't know there was that much candy in Bloomfield as the wrappers that are underneath your child's bed. And you turn to your child or grandchild, niece, nephew, and you said, listen, you need to clean your room. I mean, this is at least clear a path here. This is crazy. And you just go and you walk them through it. And you're showing them what to do. And, and you're just the great parent. So you're not yelling or anything. You're just showing them how to do everything. How many of you have done something like that one time because they obeyed perfectly after that? I don't see any hands. If y'all want to close your eyes and pray as you walk the aisle, we can. But I don't know if anybody's going to walk for that one either. Why is that? Well, it's the same reason, moms and dads, grandparents, that when you get out on the bypass and you see the speed limit sign, <laughs> and it says 65, that you don't go, okay, let me adjust my speedometer. Odometer is 65 and set the cruise control. I will never go over 65. No, you're going to go to whatever it is you think you can go without getting pulled and 
whatever that might be. Why do we do that? Well, the world can't explain that. Buddhism, Hinduism, even Islam, they, they can't explain that. The scripture does. It says that within us is this, this sin nature, and sin's the easiest thing to do, and that's what we gravitate towards. That doesn't mean that you and I are the worst person we can be. That, that doesn't mean that all of us in this room are going to become serial killers. But what it does mean is we're not going to become perfectly obedient on our own, that we can't. The Bible says we all have this sin. And just believing God's not enough to save us. And just trying not to sin isn't enough to save us. So if we take repentance to mean, we'll just stop sinning, that falls short. And that's the reason so many people are frustrated in church today. Because on one side, you've got churches that never talk about repentance. That never call anything sin. And they say, you just do whatever makes you happy. Here's the problem with that. What happens when what makes you happy makes the person beside you miserable? What happens when that which pleases you the most wrecks the life of everybody around you? Falls short, doesn't it? But then on the other side, you've got churches and pastors who say, well, just stop sinning. Stop it. Stop it. Well, pastor, stop it. Just stop it. Stop everything. Just stop it. Stop it. What's the problem with that? You can't stop. Why? Because there's this pulling your heart towards it. And that's why the answer and the only way to be saved, and what we see Paul focus on here, point through there in your notes, and what we'll leave with, is that to be saved, we have to be born again. That This term that's thrown around in surveys, you know, well, born again, people say this. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's rooted, at least the biblical understanding of it. It's rooted in the Scripture. It's rooted in this conversation somebody has with Jesus who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher because nobody can explain this stuff unless they were just, they were just a great rabbi, a great priest, great teacher. And we know you're from God because this person, Nicodemus, they've seen miracles Jesus is doing. So they know Jesus is different. But they're still wondering, well, what's going on here? There's more to this. And then Jesus gets in this conversation with Nicodemus where he says, oh yeah, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And that really confuses Nicodemus. And he starts talking about, well, can I crawl into my mother's womb? And all the mothers say, no, we can't do that. And, and so Jesus starts to unpack this, and he talks about repentance and belief in the context of God giving us a new heart. And this is the message of the entire Bible the entire Bible. You read the Old Testament over and over again, do this, do this, do this. Why don't they? Because they can't. <laughs> they can't obey. Just like you can't drive the speed limit, <laughs> kids can't clean the room. Technically, those things are possible, <laughs> but usually don't happen. Why? Because our heart, there's a heart issue here. And, and so why do some of you today sit here feeling an immense amount of guilt because you have hurt people in your life that you desperately love? I mean, have you ever been in a conversation with someone where right as soon as you said it, you're like, I, I wish I could grab that. And, but not only do you stop, you just keep going. <laughs> well, I've said it, so I might as well finish the track, you know. Why do we do that? Because we, we've got this sin problem. And apart from God giving us a new heart, no matter what we believe or how hard we try, we will always fall short. And so what we need is to be born again. And that, that's what's happening here in Acts 19. 
Paul interacts with these folks, he realizes they don't understand the Holy Spirit. They don't understand who Jesus is. And so as soon as he tells them about Jesus, what do they do? We want that. We want a new heart. Now here's what's happening here. And here's what I hope you can get as we wrap up today. What Paul is telling them is that you don't need to just try harder. You don't just need to believe some stuff. You need a new heart. And you can only have a new heart through Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what that does. That, that new heart, that rebirth, that being born again, then, then enables you to believe and repent. Not perfectly. Christians aren't perfect people by any means. But, but, but we're people who serve a perfect king. <laughs> And he's the one that's perfect. So we, we point towards him, not towards us. But, but what the, where the confusion is for so many of us is we take all this in and our application is, I just need to try harder. <laughs> you know, that, that would be like God when he created Adam. You read that account, he creates Adam as a corpse. And then he breathes life into him. But, but this would be like God creating Adam as a corpse, not giving him life, and saying, Adam, now go take care of the garden. I mean, I, I go to a lot of funerals. I'm around a lot of corpses. I, I've yet to see somebody walk up to one and tell it what to do and it sit up and do it. Probably freak us all out a little bit there. But that's kind of how we live, isn't it? We, we think that somehow we can just do all this stuff God's telling us to do. We can't do that as dead people. So what does God do? He breathes life into Adam. Then Adam can do those things. And even then he disobeys him. The point of this is what we see here. These disciples of John hear, and there's more going on in this conversation. They, they hear the gospel. They respond to the gospel. And then, and then what happens can seem a bit confusing. The, the filling with the Spirit, the speaking in tongues. But when you read the book of Acts, this is just consistent with what God's doing there. He does this at Pentecost with uh, the disciples, he does this with the Gentiles when they believe. Now he's doing this with these disciples of John as they believe. What, what this is, is, is it's showing that something different is happening in the church. And the Spirit has truly moved. And these people really are followers of Jesus now. And, and so, the question then from the text for us is, are we born again? <laughs> See, on the outside... I can't tell you. I mean, I can see some fruit in your life. I can guess. You can guess about me. But you know, there's preachers and pulpits today that aren't really born again. It comes out eventually. People shake their heads. Well, he was a preacher. Yeah, but... Some of you, I mean, you've been in this church, many of you, most of your lives. You've taught Sunday school classes. You've served on committees. You, you may not be born again. That's a question you want to answer. And that's the question the text asks of us. And... And here's what we see. Once you are born again, once Christ makes you new, then if this has happened for you, you know everything changes. Everything changes. It's like you wake up in a new world. It doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't mean you obey perfectly. You do everything perfect. Again, it means you trust in the one who is perfect in Jesus. And everything changes. And then what we do as those who are born again is we gather together under the teaching of his word to learn how to live this new life in Jesus. That's why we're here. And so if I can help you, if we can help you in that process as a church in any way we want to, because because what the church desperately needs today is for people who truly are disciples and followers of Christ to, to live based on what Christ called us to do. And that will become increasingly more difficult in our culture. And, and so we need one another to understand this new world 
we live in as believers. I'll leave you with this. The way that Irving closed his story about Rip Van Winkle. He said it was some time before Rip could be made to comprehend the strange events that had taken place during his sleep. How there had been a revolutionary war. That the country had thrown off the yoke of old England and that instead of being subjects to His Majesty George III, he was now a free citizen of the United States. Friends, if you have trusted in the gospel and put your hope in the gospel, uh, you're now a free citizen in the kingdom of God. You're no longer under the yoke of slavery and sin. And that is a wonderful truth that I hope you understand. And for others, if you've yet to experience that, we certainly want to help you with that. And so we're going to give an opportunity for response. Uh, this is a time for you just to pray and consider God's word and how you need to respond to it. If, if you already are understanding this work that God is doing and you want to be born again, we certainly invite you to come and confess Christ. If God's leading you to join our church, we invite you to do that. But... But, but we don't want to have just these moments here where people walk an aisle and then nothing changes. And so for some of you, you need to have a conversation. <laughs> we need to sit down and talk about these things. And that's why we're here. Uh, let you in a little secret. Pastor Matt and me and Nick, we, we work beyond just Sunday mornings. You know, every once in a while. And so we're here to talk to you. We're here to help you in any way we can. We're here to help people in this community. If you know somebody who's wrestling with these things, we're, we're here to help have that conversation with them. So we certainly invite you to come now. But it might need that you want to come up after church and just talk for a few minutes and set up a side to talk more with us. We, we would love to do that with you. So please don't hesitate to, to respond if God is working on your heart in this way. If you would stand together and pray with me as we go into this time of response.